Well, I want to invite you to remain standing one minute and join me in the book of Isaiah. And we'll read again from the scripture that began our time together. Chapter 25 and verse 9. If you're not sure where Isaiah is, just, just like open your Bible to like the middle and you'll nearly hit it. You'll hit maybe the Psalms uh, or Job. And just flip a little to the, the right-hand side and you'll find Isaiah. It's one of the largest books of prophecy in the Bible, and it's one of the ones that, that deals so repeatedly with the future telling of King Jesus, his our incarnation, his birth, his reign. So much so that, um, that Isaiah speaks so often of um, the reign of Jesus that the Jews missed the messianic implication of Jesus' birth because they're looking for that which Isaiah speaks of his second coming. And so Isaiah gives us a good lesson in prophecy and that there is often that near and far component. And so Isaiah speaks often of the birth of Jesus, but also of the nature of his second coming. And so it's an appropriate place for us to begin this first Sunday of Advent. Well, let's read it again, and then we'll pray and dive in. Isaiah 25, verse 9, it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the words that you put into the mouth of the prophet so many years ago, many years before Jesus' birth, and certainly a great number before your second coming. May you now illuminate these words to our minds, fill our hearts with wonder at the beginning of this anticipatory season, May you mold us and shape us, convict us, make us, and use us for the sake of your kingdom. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. May be seated. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. When I walked in the sanctuary this morning, that was the, the refrain that jumped into my mind. I, um, I had kind of forgotten that we did this, you know? <laughs> Uh, my family and, and another family, we got together last weekend and, uh, and you know, moved some decorations around and plugged in some lights. And, uh, and then we went on to, you know, celebrate Thanksgiving, you know, and it's harvest and it's pumpkins and turkey and a lot of meals, you know, and just, whew, you know. And then I walked in this morning and it was like, oh, yeah, yeah. And I look at this, and I go, oh, it's beginning to look a lot. The Christmas story is not merely that God sent his son to save sinners. That's true. The Christmas story is about how God did this. And it can be summarized with one word, Incarnation. That name that he is to be given, Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Not merely a savior for us, 
but a Savior who is God himself with us. God became man, made in the likeness of sinners, to take the place of sinners on the wonderful cross, so that mere humans might inherit the birthright of the divine. That's a statement, isn't it? And so these weeks, as I've been preparing to begin this series, now a week early, earlier than anticipated, um, I, I was reflecting on this, and I just sort of, in a, in a, in a quiet sort of devotional journaling type moment, I just thought and I wrote, of all the ways that God the Creator in eternity past might devise a solution to the problem, the plight of human sinfulness, the incarnation was his majestic concoction. Here you are, you are the God of all creation. Before, if you will, the timeline of creation being spoken into existence, devising, deciding a plan by which you will rescue humankind from the sin that dooms them. And God says, if you will, I know what. Not that God can learn. We have to think of it the best way we can anthropomorphically speaking, I know what I'll do. I'll become like my creation. In fact, um, I, I've been struck uh, this week in, in reading ahead in, in a, a new Advent devotional that, that we're promoting about how often um, the church fathers and the reformers and serious theologians talk of Jesus as a baby looking up at his mother Mary while she holds him in his arm in her arms I, I was struck by that because this whole concept is preposterous it's audacious it's who who would think this up I'll become a helpless baby Entrusted to a young first-time mother, at least let her raise a couple of kids and make all the mistakes first, you know? Those poor first children, you know? My wife and I often talk about how it took us five tries to get it right, you know? And our youngest, Luke, he's just a dream, you know? Easy, laid back, funny, like we finally got it, <laughs> What a crazy idea, right? Of all the ways God could decide to solve the plight of the human condition, he chooses to inhabit the flesh of a helpless baby, to grow up as one of his creation, only to live a completely sinless existence, and then to give himself as a sacrifice to reclaim what would be lost to sin. Who could think this up? Only something as majestic as the mind of God himself in eternity past could devise such a concoction. 
Irenaeus, who was a second century Greek bishop in uh, what the Bible refers to in the New Testament as Asia or Asia Minor, we would call it Turkey. Irenaeus, who was a, a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of the Apostle John, so just two degrees removed from Jesus himself, he said this, Christ caused humanity to cleave to and become one with God. This is fascinating. When you think about the etymology of the word cleave, now, a cleaver divides, right? Spe- very specifically, it doesn't slice, it doesn't cut, it divides what was whole. And so when the church fathers spoke of, of Christ causing humanity to cleave to God, they are saying that action happened in reverse. What was divided is now once again whole. So Christ, in his incarnation, caused humanity to cleave to God and become one with him. And he says, because, the reason for that, okay? The reason this was so critical is that unless a human being conquered human's enemy, the victory would not be legitimately secured. It's fascinating. He goes on saying, and again, unless it had been God incarnate who had freely given salvation, we could never have possessed it securely. And unless humanity had been joined to God, we could never have become partakers of incorruptibility. There's a three-part sermon right there. I won't teach it. In other words, the incarnation is super-duper cool and really important. So much so that Christianity over the ages has set apart the weeks leading up to Christmas, a season we now call Advent, to pause and reflect on the wonder of Jesus, his prophetic birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension, and promised return. Traditionally, the first Sunday of Advent has this as its theme, hope. Now, we're going to use the word promise because it is hope in the fulfillment of what Jesus promised he would do. But I'd be getting ahead of us to start there. Uh, To engage this season well, I would like for us to speak uh, holistically about Advent. Beginning first with all of our favorite word. Ready? Number one history. Eh? Yeah. <laughs> Fellow nerds unite. History. Woo! I had a great uh, European history teacher in high school. His name was uh, he's, uh, Coach Saunders. I only know him as Coach or Mr. Saunders. Probably half of you in this room know Coach Saunders. Coach baseball. Taught at West Mech High School. And I hated history until I took European history with Coach Saunders. What possessed me to do this? I have no idea. But he taught European history in a way that made the world come alive. And ever since then, I've kind of been um, 
Well, like George Costanza, like I'd like to be a history buff. I want to be a buff. I don't know that I'd, I'm a buff, but I'd like to be a buff. History. Let's start there. The history of a Christian Christmas is a bit of a fuzzy affair. A lot of elements come together over the course of time. First, there is some historical precedent that Christians believe Jesus was crucified on the day of his conception. So if he was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary in the springtime, he would have been born in the winter. Thus began a tradition of celebrating Jesus' birth on December 25th or January 6th, depending on either Western or Eastern Orthodox tradition. Now, I don't know if that's true, uh, or even if a combination of biblical and historical evidence could prove it, but there is precedent for that. What we also know for sure is that the Romans in the first century celebrated uh, Saturnalia, a two-week-long festival honoring the agricultural god Saturn, which of course you would want to do because you want the crops to grow. So you honor the agricultural god, or else you die of starvation. And so the Romans had a practice of of this two-week-long festival from December 17th to December 23rd, honoring and celebrating Saturnalia. Now, many historians believe early Christians recognized this as a passionate celebration of an idol and looked around and, quote, they looked and said to themselves, we're surrounded by this ungodliness, but it's a celebratory ungodliness. We have something much greater to celebrate. That is the incarnation. And so they, if you will, grabbed the opportunity with both hands and began to celebrate the incarnation instead of Saturnalia. However, of course, if you know much about early church history in the Roman Empire, um, Christians worshiping their God instead of the Roman and Greek gods was viewed as the reason why bad things happen. So you're not celebrating Saturnalia, you're celebrating your God, you're going to cause a famine because you didn't honor the agricultural God. And we recognize in church history that on Christmas celebrations, churches were burned down with their congregants celebrating the incarnation inside of them as a price to celebrate Christmas in a pagan society. So much so that Sinclair Ferguson remarks, a Christmas celebration of Jesus then was no casual affair. It was serious Christianity. Now, by the fourth century, we know Christianity was the legal religion of the Roman Empire after Constantine's conversion, and I'll put that in air quotes, okay? Uh, It's by divine providence and God's in control, but how genuine was Constantine's conversion? Mm, History tells a pretty divided tale. Nonetheless, Christianity was the legal religion, and so you can't burn churches down anymore for celebrating Christmas instead of Saturnalia or honoring the Incarnation. And so this two-week-long festival of Saturnalia was being turned into a weeks-long time of celebrating Christ, his death, resurrection, and promised return. They began to call this Adventists, 
the Latin word, because Latin by the fourth century was the adopted language of the church, the official, if you will, language of the church. And so they began to call this season of, of anticipating and celebrating the return of Christ around Christmas time as we know it as Adventus, Latin word that means arrival. And that's because the last words recorded that came from Jesus are through the Apostle Paul, excuse me, through the Apostle John in the end of Revelation, where he says, Surely I am coming soon. And so the church would gather for weeks at a time to reflect on and anticipate his return. It wasn't until the 6th century that Advent began to shift its focus from the pending return of Jesus to his first arrival with a man named St. Gregory the Great. And then by the Middle Ages, something referred to as the, the Christian calendar or the Christian year was really taking shape, and four Sundays had been officially assigned to the Advent season and four traditional themes for each week. The first, always looking forward to his pending return. Which is why when we adjusted the music for this morning, I, I told John, keep a couple of those songs. They make sense. It's about the cross of Christ, and it's about his pending return. It's not all about his birth. Not originally, anyway. But it wasn't just that. There was a triune focus that took shape around the Middle Ages in these four weeks. It was anticipating his return, looking back to his first advent, but thirdly, considering the advent, the arrival of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. So if you will, three advents. His birth, the promise arrival of the Holy Spirit, and his promised return. Which makes sense because the biblical authors tell us that, that, I think it was Paul who said, we have as our guarantee a deposit, a down payment. A guarantee that he will return, a guarantee that we will be with him when we breathe our last breath, if we trust in him, to, to assure us, to make us certain of this, he put a down payment into us in the person of the Holy Spirit. And so I think that's a good, that's good. Three advents. Well, since then, you got, right, you have, you have early practice and martyrdom and then fourth century cultural co-opting of, of Christianity over all the culture in the Roman Empire. And you have the, the sixth century with Gregory the Great, the Middle Ages. Well, then comes, what comes next, guys? Key moment? Go ahead, come on. The Reformation? Yeah. The Reformation? All right, let's do it again. Um, what comes up to the Middle Ages that's a really key moment in the church's history? That's right. Good. And since the Reformation, a whole host of variations in the practice of Advent has taken root across the globe. Let me just share a few of them with you. The Dutch reformers emphasized that second coming of Christ on the first Sunday of Advent. So they were all in 
On the other end of the spectrum, the Scottish reformers were shocked to find out people weren't working a full work day on Christmas Day. <laughs> so the, the whole you know, other end of the spectrum. The Dutch are like, let's party for a month. And the Scots are like, why aren't you at work? <laughs> so the compromise after, after, this is a funny story, the compromise after the Westminster Assembly uh, was that the Scots went home and said, okay, we'll do a half work day on Christmas Day. <laughs> Isn't that great? So really very different. Very different. The Puritans refused to participate in any form of Christmas celebration altogether, considering it a form of idolatry. I mean, it's the reason why the Puritans also wouldn't have a wooden cross like this inside of a building or on a church campus anywhere. No pictures, no idols, no holy things set up that might supplant or steer the attention away from the person of God and his word to symbols, emblems. And they looked at a celebration like Christmas as a symbol, almost like an idolatrous betrayal of adhering to the worship of God and God alone. Others began a 40-day observation. It started in mid-November and then culminates on Christmas Day. Today, the evangelical church is all over the map. Many of you, like me, didn't grow up even knowing about Advent. Um, I think the first time I even heard the word was when my wife recommended we make an Advent wreath out of the cardboard cutout hands of our children. You guys ever done one of those? And I went, yeah, good idea. What's Advent? You know, <laughs> I look like an idiot in front of my own wife. I mean, she signed, you know, she stuck with me, but... Well, that pretty much brings us up to speed on the evolution of an official church-sanctioned tradition we call Advent. It's kind of all over the map. There's not really one path. There's not really a clean line. So the question, of course, becomes, well, what do we do? With all of that variation and all of that history, what do we do? Well, let's then use another word to consider a brief portion, purpose. Number two, purpose. What's the purpose of this? What's the goal? Well, Martin Lloyd-Jones said it's a great mistake not to preach sermons on the incarnation around Christmas. This in response to the Puritans who refused to even acknowledge the, the, the season. Sinclair Ferguson says if a church doesn't set aside a season to focus on the birth of Christ, it's likely they rarely hear a sermon preached on the incarnation. Referring to the incarnation of Christ as, quote, the great inbreaking of God into human history, end quote. And so going all the way back to the fourth century and learning from the church over the ages, I think we can reasonably conclude that God intends for his people to meditate on the wonder of Jesus' first arrival and joyfully, hopefully anticipate his second. And that's the purpose of the tradition, to help us steady our minds on Christ during a season which has been historically pagan 
and now has become more materialistic and commercial than sacred and holy. And so my hope is that these weeks will help us as a church family accordingly. So, for our time today, we have history, we have purpose. Third word, number three, we have waiting. Waiting. The people of God are a waiting people. Now, the, the first phrase of our text reminds us, again, Isaiah 25, 9, it, it says this, what? It will be. It will be. The very first line of this devotional that we've been promoting here at Hillcrest uh, reads like this. As, as early as Eden, God's people have been awaiting people. Following the fall of our first parents, God made a promise that permanently oriented his people toward the future. And what was that promise? That was a promise that God made to Satan in Genesis chapter 3. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so from this moment onward, the characters in the Bible begin looking forward to this salvation. They begin thinking about it, expecting it, waiting for it, prophesying about it, and even naming their children accordingly. That's why Joshua was one of the most famous names in all of ancient Israel. Yeshua, the Lord will save his people. <laughs> They're looking for and waiting for that salvation. Lamech named his son Noah, a name which means uh, rescue from the curse of the ground. Yet it would be 600 years of waiting before Noah would go on to build that ark. That's two times the age of America, and then some. Abraham would be told by a promise of God that he would make him into a great nation, but 20 years later, still doesn't even have a single son. Five years more after trying to make the promise come true on his own, only then does God bring along Isaac, the son of promise, the son of waiting, if you will. Jonathan Gibson notes, the biblical genealogies reveal that God's promise in Eden of a coming, conquering son takes 4,000 years to become a reality. That's a lot of waiting. Children are funny, aren't they? A month seems such a long time when the Christmas decorations start going up and those wrapped presents begin to appear under the tree. Will Christmas ever come? Right? Will it ever be here? That, that picture is certainly epitomized in C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia where the, the witch of Narnia has cast a spell on the whole world. It's always winter, but never Christmas. <laughs> waiting for Christmas, waiting, waiting, waiting. Arr! You know? And of course, as you get older, you realize, man, I mean, not only do days and weeks seem to fly by, but years 
seem to have passed before your eyes. A month is nothing. You speak to a, a young person going to college, young people who are in your high school years or college years. You think that perhaps taking six months or a year or two years even to, 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 to ready yourself or steady yourself or learn a trade or like I did, go to a, like a, a, almost like a, like a Bible college, like a training school that was less about becoming a pastor and more about just being a Christian. And you think, boy, two years, six months, a year of my life, all my friends and all my peers, and we would, we who are on this side of, you know, 30, you know, we would say, friend, six months, a season, a year, to take your mind as a young person and devote it to the scriptures to see who God is, who you are, oh friend. It's not wasted time at all. It's but a short season in your life, you see. But children can't grasp that. Children wait and they cling and they fret and they wonder and they long for and they think about. And I think partly just because they don't have anything else to do. And I mean, they have to worry about. You know, here we are. We got like bills to pay and leaves to manage. And and all they can do is think, one more hour closer to Christmas. <laughs> on and on we could go. And the Bible paints a picture of the people of God as a, as a people like that. Watching the clock, looking, waiting. I'll name my son Noah. He will rescue humanity from the curse of the ground. A hundred years, 200 years, right? The Bible paints a picture of a people who are in, in constant expectation. Waiting. Sinclair Ferguson says God was keeping his longest standing promise and the one that is most difficult to keep in the birth of Christ. The entire Old Testament, then, is the story of God setting the stage, patiently setting the scene for this bruising of the heel and the bruising of the head. Jesus' heel on the cross and Satan's head in his defeat. I actually like to think of this as a parallel between two gardens— Eden and Gethsemane. There in the Garden of Gethsemane, a mere hours before Jesus would be crucified, he anticipated his arrest. He anticipated his humiliation, his mockery, the physical pain his body would go through, his abandonment, his loneliness. And to the extent that we read that this, the strain of this anticipation caused the, the, the blood capillaries in his forehead to burst. And against all impulse of human will, Jesus submitted himself to the will of the Father. That's the moment to me Jesus crushed the head of Satan. 
And being found in human form, Paul writes to the Philippians, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As Jesus hung on that cross, he would, he would um, collapse his own lungs by the weight of his, uh, his ribcage, uh, kind of pressing into his lungs by being suspended uh, by your arms. And he would have to lift his body up to take a breath. And with each time, in and out, in and out, for three hours, historians speak of the heel being rubbed against the wood of the cross again and again and again. You will bruise his heel, but, but he will crush your head. Everything in between the two gardens, Eden and Gethsemane, works to anticipate this conquering son of Eve who would fulfill the promise of Genesis chapter 3. When we come into Luke's gospel, we are quickly introduced to a man named Simeon, a righteous man, a devout man, a man who is described as one who is waiting on the consolation of Israel. Upon seeing the baby Jesus being brought up for ceremonial purposes in Judaism, upon seeing him, Simeon knows by the Spirit that his waiting is over. He says, Lord, you are now letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Waiting. If the story of Jesus' life begins with an old man's waiting... His earthly life ends, so to speak, with a promise of his return and explicit instructions to watch and wait. The angel says to the apostles as they stand gawking up at the heavens, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will in the same way come to you as you saw him go in to heaven. And so where does that bring us? Well, right back to where we started. The people of God are awaiting people. Quote, in both dispensations of redemptive history, that's Old Covenant and New Covenant, the people of God are defined by waiting, end quote. We are a people waiting for the promise of God. This was true of ancient Israel, and it's true of the church of Jesus Christ. Let us then consider our text. Isaiah chapter 25, verse 9, first phrase. It will be said on that day. It will be said on that day. From this church we are assured, we are waiting for the promise of Jesus' return to be fulfilled, but it's not like the promise of a friend. It's not like the promise of a government. It's not like the promise of even a parent, for this promise is from God. I love the way that the writer of Hebrews talks about God making promises. Almost almost to imply, to help us understand, that God in seeking to communicate a way to assure his audience 
that they they can trust his word. The writer to the Hebrews says, God says, "I, I swear to you by me. I swear to you by myself, sort of the way that we might look for some grander thing, some higher authority, some great price to to swear by when we are wed to our husband or our wife. We swear before God and man. In the name of Jesus Christ, we promise So we refer to one who is greater. And God says, given that there's no one greater to assure you, I swear to you by myself. Listen to this. When God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. That's it. And thus Abraham, having patiently waiting, obtained the promise for People swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, that's you, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Uh, he, He swears by himself, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Calvin remarks, this is an excellent conclusion. It will be said on that day. It will be said on that day. This is an excellent conclusion for it shows that God's benefits are not in any respect doubtful or uncertain, but are actually received and enjoyed by men. So first, I'd like us to remind ourselves of this as the Andrew Peterson's song says. Is it good that we remind ourselves of this? It is. Let us remind ourselves of this. The promise is as sure as the God who made it. We hope for his return with certainty. Have you noticed that with the change of governments in America, the promises of the former president can be summarily wiped away. What did we see with the incumbent new president a few years ago? A literal stack of presidential edicts. What are they called? Executive orders. Executive I tried to get Pastor Don to take the title executive pastor, not associate or assistant pastor. I didn't like the idea that a man old enough to be my dad would be called my assistant. I don't like that. That rubs me the wrong way. You be the executive. And he refused. He didn't like it. It sounds like he's in charge. He's like, -uh." (laughs) nah. I'm passing that off to you, pal. You can deal with that. No. Executive order. 
and, and by presidential decree with the seal and the might of the government of the United States behind it, everything the last president said is null and void, signed, stamped, done. The promises of a man are as worthless as the paper on which they might be printed. We wait. We hope for his return with certainty. Second phrase we read on in Isaiah verse 9, 25. Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. The whole of Christianity can be summed up in this phrase. We wait for him that he might save us. We are a human population born into desperate need of saving. From the sin into which we are born, thanks to Adam, the sin which we knowingly commit in our selfishness, the sin that we don't realize we commit until the Holy Spirit convicts us, and the sin that seems inescapable as a pattern of life, no matter how hard we might try. That's assuming we try. We are born into desperate need of saving. Because before we realize how sinful we are, we've sinned enough to send a thousand men to hell. What a desperate condition into which we are born and then into which we exist and we live and we function. And when we lay our head down on the pillow at night, we might reflect if we're quiet enough and go, boy, I did it again today. pitiful creatures unless there is a God who might save us. Aristotle said it best, I count him braver who overcomes his desires than him who conquers his enemies, for the hardest victory is over self. This sin dooms us, but it is an unwelcome intrusion into God's good world, and so he made a way to rescue us. And the waiting for that way is over. It was finished at the incarnation of Christ, his perfect life, his substitutionary death, assured to us by his resurrection and his promised return, sworn to us by the oath of God himself. But critically, the wait is over. God's purpose is fulfilled that he might save us. God our Savior, Paul writes to Timothy, desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And so the second thing I'd like for us to consider this morning is that we wait not in vain, but we wait for salvation from a God who loves to forgive and has done the unimaginable to achieve it. Third phrase. There at the end of the verse, let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. 
The people of God are encouraged, commanded even, to celebrate God's complete rescue, that for which we are waiting as though it is a present reality. Understand this. When Isaiah wrote these words, Israel was not in a season of flourishing as a nation. They were being oppressed and invaded and conquered. And Isaiah said, rejoice in the salvation of the Lord, right? Can you imagine everyone listening to him? What are you talking about? My house just got burned down. My wife and children just got murdered. And we're being carried off into slavery. And you say, rejoice in the salvation of the Lord? What are you talking about? Are you crazy? Have you not looked around? Have you not read the news? Are you not aware of the wars? And yet the people of God are encouraged to celebrate God's rescue as though it is a present reality, not just a future potential. This can be hard for us because quite frankly, life stinks sometimes. We make bad decisions and we suffer the consequences. We are born into bad situations and suffer the consequences. We are diagnosed with illness and suffer the consequences. And beyond this human existence that is plagued by sin's ill effects, to be a Christian, a genuine Christian, in an increasingly post-Christian culture presents a new and ongoing challenge. Here we are talking about Jesus coming back. We are hoping in he who is to return, his second advent. It's been 2,000 years since he was crucified, and yet crickets, not trumpets, not a white horse, seeming silence. Meanwhile, our culture tells us to be concerned about a great many things. The climate, because apparently the earth is getting hotter and something bad is going to happen. I mean, it sounds to me like it's just going to be like Florida everywhere. I mean, that sounds great, but... It's one of those things that my wife says, if you didn't write it down, maybe you shouldn't say it. (laughs) She's not wrong. No, our culture tells us to be concerned about things on the here and now, right? Get real, Christians. The climate, social injustices, economic equalities, inequalities, political corruptions, Right, And we get together and we're singing Kumbaya and we're talking about Jesus coming back. We sound ridiculous. Unless it's true. Unless it's true. Plato said it like this, those who are able to see beyond the shadows and lies of their culture will never be understood, let alone believed, by the masses. So the third bit of application or encouragement that I might offer on this first Sunday of Advent is this. Beware of engaging the season on the level of mere sentimentality. We are not holding hands and seeing Hakuna Matata while the world burns. No, we are waiting for the glorious arrival of Jesus, the King of creation, the Savior of our souls, the conqueror of sin and death, and our hope is real. So be prepared 
the apostle says, to defend it. Because the world looks at you and says, you're ridiculous. Be ready to tell them why it's true. Believe it and be prepared to explain it. In a world of plastic surgery and phony social media identities, what we hold dear, what we celebrate, what we champion is genuine. So don't treat it like base sentiment. Treat it like the glorious truth upon which your eternity rests and compel others to the same. For Acts chapter 4, verse 12, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved than the very name of Jesus. Believe on him, celebrate him, share him in this Advent season. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you for your word, uh, how you encourage us and how you exhort us to think critically in the times in which we live. May we offer to the world watching a reason for the hope that we have, a reason for our celebration while the world burns. May we be able to offer genuinely and extend the hand of grace from a God who loves to forgive. Help us accordingly. Prepare our minds and our hearts to do so during this Advent season. In Christ's name we pray and for his sake. Amen.